Hi, I'm Ryan Bracken, Chief Product Officer at DroneSense. We provide a comprehensive drone software platform for public safety, and we're excited to be talking today about DFR. Hey, I'm Matt Sloan, founder and CEO of Skyfire Consulting. We are a public safety-focused drone consulting company, and today we're going to be talking all about DFR, drone first responder, and drones for public safety. Hi, everyone. I'm Greg from Pilot Institute. We train drone pilots all over the country. Hi, my name is Haya from DroneXL, where we cover all the drone news on our website. Welcome to the latest episode of the Pixel Drone Show, our weekly podcast where we talk to industry professionals about what they do in the UAS space. From professionals who use drone to fly inspection missions to public safety users or even drone light shows, you will learn on the Pixel Drone Show that drones are much more than just toys. So, how was your uh, how was your week? Without week has me. been pretty good. Huh? How was it? How was it doing the? Uh, how was it doing the show for me? It was interesting. It was funny because um, it made me rethink how I would record videos. And basically, what I what I ended up doing was kind of like just figuring out what I was going to say and then prep and then just say it, which of course results in having to re-record segments a bunch of times. But it made yep. me look into using a, a teleprompter and I think that's what I'm going to do for short news video clips going forward. So it actually oh, triggered perfect. me kind of figuring out a different way of working, which I think will be beneficial. Yeah, so I, I, do, I, do a pro yeah I do a prompter, but I don't, I don't read from it. I just do bullet points from the prompter yeah. so I know what you talk about and I just kind of expand but uh yeah. yeah well thanks for doing that I, I really appreciate it i think the feedback was really good from uh from people that watched so it was fun i tried try to make it a little funny with a little humor in there since you weren't uh around so <laughs> yeah yeah it was no, that good. worked out well that worked out well <laughs> yeah so who do we have uh, as our guests for today today we have two guests which is uh two. fairly rare in general uh, I have my coffee mm -hmm. getting delivered to me. Look at this. Thank you, Don. Oh, wow. This is the first time I'm drinking coffee in like probably a year and a half or two years, maybe. So uh, we'll see what happens. Oh, but so I, people I better a... buckle up. This is going to be an entertaining <laughs> show. <laughs> my, my wife loves seeing me on coffee because I'm like super hyper. That's why I don't drink coffee because it makes me very jittery. But I had yeah. a long night because the kiddos are still on, on French time zone. So uh, one tough. woke up. Yeah, he went back to bed at 6 p.m., fell asleep without even me seeing it, and then woke up yeah. at midnight, came into our room, and he's like, hey, I'm ready, I need my breakfast. And I was like, holy I smokes, play. it's midnight. <laughs> yep, so that was fun. So he was I've, up I've from midnight. <laughs> I know what yeah, it's he like. he was up, up from midnight until 3 a.m., and then he fell asleep at 3 or 4 a.m., I don't even know, because then I just stayed up, fun. basically. So that was yeah. fun. I, so, so I need uh, coffee this morning. But anyway, let's talk about yeah. our guest. Uh, we have two guests. Let me uh, put up my notes here. And uh, I'm actually pretty excited because we're, we're talking about uh, DFR, Drone as First Responders. And we kind of talked about this before with Divi. Uh, and we'll have actually Divi on the show as well, again, uh, from Paladin Drone. And then, um, and so our guest today is, is Matt and Ryan. And uh, Ryan is from DroneSense. And I actually see Ryan is popping out right now. And uh, he's already right here. With you, Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and Ryan is is with DroneSense. We've met Ryan yeah. uh, a couple of years ago, actually in Texas, and they have an amazing software that they use for uh, for first responders. And so we'll talk about this. And they've been adding the DFR drone first responder as an option recently. Uh, we saw a demo when we were in Texas, and it was really impressive. And we have Matt mm -hmm. Sloan, who's the CEO of Skyfire, and uh, they're also uh, doing stuff with uh, with DFR. So both of them will be will have, uh, I think, uh, a great discussion talking about all that stuff. 
So awesome. I'm, I'm always happy when we can uh, talk about drones as first responders and drones being uh, used for good because I think that's a story that we can't tell and share enough. So uh, we have coffee, we have two guests. This is going to be a, a kick-ass show. I agree. Let's bring them on. All right, and it's time to welcome our guests to the show. So we have uh, Matt Sloan. Matt is the CEO of Skyfire. We just kind of talked about what you guys did, and uh, and we have Ryan Brecken, which the who is the CPO, and CPO is uh, the Chief Product Officer for DroneSense. And uh, welcome both to the show. Thanks for having us. Yeah, great to be here. So, Matt, let's get started with you. Tell us a little bit more about how you got into drones and then how you uh, became the CEO of Skyfire. Again, I was reading about Skyfire and, and there is actually more. You do a lot more than just one company. So I'd be interested to hear a little bit more about uh, that background. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, I, uh, I, I spent 14 years as a producer at CNN, uh, most of it in medical news. Um, and, you know, I sort of decided in 2014 that I wanted to try something else, uh, try something on my own. And um, after I had left CNN, I was still freelancing there, and they had asked me to come speak to a group of um, public information officer trainees about how CNN covered major news stories. And the day before I gave that talk, uh, I had gotten my first Phantom Two, uh, and I said, "Hey, and by the way, we have these uh, we have these drones now, um, so it's not just a reporter, you know, with a satellite truck and a microphone that you have to worry about, but we've got these flying cameras." Um, and I had four fire chiefs come up to me after that talk and say, hey, how do I get that for my department? And that's actually how I got the idea to start Skyfire. Um, I pulled in uh, two of my my close college roommates, uh, who both, one of whom was an attorney and one of whom was a, a serial entrepreneur and just said, hey, you guys want to you want to do this with me? And then uh, we brought on um, uh, another partner who was a flight instructor and he knew all the aviation side of things. Uh, and then we just kind of, you know, we started getting out there and talking to people. And what we found, you know, in those early years was that we were we were pretty early on. Um, and, you know, we, we felt like, oh, we don't really know how this works yet. But uh, nobody did. So we were figuring it out as we went. Um, over the intervening years, I, I've since gone and gotten my private pilot's license. So now I, I understand the, the manned aviation side as well. Um, and then, you know, we've grown from there. So we, we've worked with, you know, five, 500 plus uh, public safety agencies to get their programs started, uh, police, fire, emergency management, um, dabbling a little bit in uh, emergency medical services. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we've, we've gotten an opportunity to do some really cool stuff over the last eight years. Um, and, and as you mentioned, too, we have uh, we have two other sort of parts of the business. One um, that does uh, drone manufacturing. So we're, we're manufacturing our own aircraft now. Um, and then uh, we also do a lot in the oil and gas and engineering space as well, too. So we've got uh, yeah. some folks who focus on that. And we'll be talking awesome. about the drone definitely later on. So, yep. Great. Yeah, this uh, sounds like you have a lot of experience there and a lot of things we uh, we can tap into in uh, in this conversation. Uh, switching to Ryan, he's the Chief Product Officer of DroneSense. Ryan, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got started with uh, DroneSense? Yeah, I think like a, a lot of people in the drone industry, I started with radio-controlled airplanes and helicopters. You know, from a from a young age, was just crazy about about flying things. Um, I ultimately became an aerospace engineer. Um, started building my own RC airplanes and crashing them. <clears throat> in fact, I don't know if I've ever had an RC plane, but it did not ultimately crash. So this is one of the things that's been really exciting about the drone industry. Um, in fact, just yesterday we had a, a company meeting where we walked through some of the history of drones. Um, my brother and I, um, Philip Brackney, he's also in the in the kind of aerospace industry. Uh, we tried building our first drone um, 
it's probably 06, 07, you know, when you had to compile your own code and put all these sensors together, we could never get it to fly right. Um, and then we saw some, some of those drones coming out. You had 3DR and DJI coming out with these amazing drones. And at that time, I had moved to the FBI. I was a, a, a special agent um, in the D.C. area uh, with the FBI. And we began to see the operational impact or possibilities of drones. And the whole, the whole thing that's exciting there is that the drones now fly themselves so well. Uh, some of these drones are, are very reliable, very high quality. The, the, the links are fantastic. And so that really got me excited about the operational component of, of drone use. Um, so I met um, Chris Ihorn uh, and uh, Gerard Juarez, our, our co-founders, uh, actually at Quantico as, as a part of the FBI. Um, and I was so crazy about what they were doing that I ultimately left the FBI and joined the team in 2018. Um, and that's been a, really an extraordinary experience for, for me. Uh, my role has changed over the time, um, as, as you mentioned uh, hi, I'm the chief product officer. I'm also the chief information security officer because somebody's got to track the uh, the security side of things. Um, but it's been a it's been a really interesting experience. Um, you know, of course, our company has grown. We've been uh, hiring a lot lately, um, but we have a, a platform that provides what we would call comprehensive situational awareness to to drone operators and to uh, public safety on the ground. Um, so it's been a great great experience uh, working with Matt, um, and really pleased to be part of the show. So I know you guys have been working together. Can you tell us a bit more about how you guys met and how you've been working together in the drone space? Yeah, absolutely. It's been, uh, I don't even know how many years anymore, but uh, we're probably not worth counting. Um, we, I was actually introduced to, uh, to the DroneSense team by uh, Coit Kessler, um, who uh, was at the Austin Fire Department at the time. And he said, hey, you got, you got to look at what these guys are doing. This is so cool. Um, and he, he introduced me to Chris Ihorn and, uh, we started going down that road. And then obviously once Ryan came on board, uh, he and I have worked very closely together, but, um, you know, one thing I'll, I'll say, cause Ryan is too humble to say it about uh, himself, uh, and, and about the company is, uh, it, it's just great software. I mean, we, you know, we, we've had hundreds of agencies that we've signed on to the drone sense platform, uh, and, uh, with very few exceptions, you know, they just think it's a fantastic product and, um, it really, it really, you know, it meets a need that we all have. I mean, aside from, you know, making money and, and selling great product, it's, you know, public safety guys are out there uh, all day long, just trying to do the best job they can and they need the right tools. I was going to say, thanks a lot, Matt. Um, I've slept on Matt's couch, um, you know, during Super Bowl. That was the Atlanta <laughs> Super Bowl. Um, it was a, it was a busy time. It was an extraordinary success that uh, Matt and his team uh, pulled off and we were grateful to be part of it. But I think, you know, over the years, this is a challenging industry. It's changed a lot. There's been a lot going on. Um, and Matt and, and the team at Skyfire has been just, they've been, uh, you know, almost like family to drone sense as we've navigated these, these difficult, uh, these difficult, uh, you know, challenge that we all experience in the drone industry. Mm -hmm. So it's been, it's been a lot of fun to work together. Yeah, I think that's that's something that's definitely specific to the drone industry. Like it developed so quickly and people were discovering all these new use cases for drones so fast that everything has been catching up, right? Organizations, the FEA has been catching up. And I feel like the last five, six, seven years, a lot of it was just figuring it out as you go. Um, I have a question for, for both of you, but let's start with you, Ryan. I mean, can can both of you tell us uh, who are your customers? Who, are you, who do you cater to and where are they uh, geographically uh, located? So our customers are largely public safety. Uh, we are very focused on public safety, and that includes law enforcement, fire rescue, emergency management, as well as what we kind of call the, the second responders, people who are there to restore your power, 
um, and, and cover other types of events, uh, environmental disasters. So we have a, a cross section of both government as well as commercial customers in that, in that kind of segment. Um, and they're located everywhere. Um, all across the country, we have uh, several overseas now. Um, and it's been, it's really been an extraordinary experience for us. Uh, you know, we, we talk a lot about, um, you know, government, well, particularly public safety is a fairly small segment of the overall drone industry. And why are we so focused on it? And the, the satisfaction we get from working with these customers, it is, it is unbelievable how generous they are with their feedback, um, how they're out there to save, they're out there trying to save lives and we get to support them. Um, and what's fantastic, and I know Matt would, would share, uh, this sentiment as well, is it's amazing to watch them share with each other. Um, there's, there's just something uh, almost viral about a new, it's a new drone. They all talk amongst each other and then say, Oh, and suddenly something rises to the surface. Same thing with, of course, our software, a new feature comes out. Um, you see them talk about it and, and used in ways you can never imagine. So yeah, our customers are fantastic. Can, can you give us a, a use case scenario, Ryan, for what drone sense can be used for? I remember seeing a presentation in Texas where you guys were talking. I don't know if it was you or if it was one of your customers actually talking about how there was a, um, a group of cars that was on a parking lot at night that they were going after. Do you remember that example? Can you maybe talk yeah. about this and how the software was used in this kind of operation? Sure. Uh, Greg, that was, <clears throat> that, that was, uh, I think that was Austin police that they gave that presentation. Um, but there were several agencies involved and this is probably the, the number one, um, most powerful part of drone sense is collaboration. Uh, very few public safety operations of that scale are done by a single department. So, uh, just a little bit about drone sense, the, the, the platform, we have a flight control application as well as a real-time operations capability where you can live stream video and see geographically where people are. Um, and we have the admin side. And then we'll talk, I'm sure, at some point today about um, drone as a first responder and our DS remote um, capability. Um, but what was done there was you have a bunch of pilots from different agencies um, out there supporting this operation. It, hundreds of people, very large-scale operation. Um, and there's there's news about it, so I'm sure maybe after we can get some links for that. But I think the the... The whole, the overarching goal was to, to safely, um, address this very large crowd of potentially criminal activity. Um, so several drone teams were used. They all streamed the video into a single, uh, a single source. They use what we call their mission, uh, yeah, mission sharing. Um, so they're all operating from the same platform. Everyone can see each other's locations, video. And not only that, um, they're able to use polygons, um, on the map to carve out areas to say, Okay, Austin Police, you have this this area. This parking lot is yours. Uh, maybe Texas Department of Public Safety, you have this area um, or other you know um, operators there. So the nice thing there is that you're able to kind of componentize the work in the operational areas, uh, but then in real time see if somebody's flying outside of their area. So you can see their drone get out of the red area. Maybe they're responsible for. You can say, oh shoot, mm -hmm. you know, let's change altitudes. Let's do something. Uh, to avoid a collision. So I've personally witnessed with my own eyes um, this save uh, interagency collisions um, in real time because they can see they're at the same altitude. They're getting really close. Uh, you make a quick radio call and everything's averted. So then uh, switching back to you, Matt, uh, who are your customers? Who, who does your organization cater to? Uh, exactly the same customers that Ryan's organization does. Same, uh, same yeah. thing. Yeah, we, we, 
public safety and uh, and what I call them, uh, what he calls second responders, I call the uh, public safety adjacent folks. So, uh, you know, critical infrastructure and, and, and disaster management support type stuff. But, um, you know, for us, it, it's really just a calling. I mean, it, it's definitely not the not always the sexiest part of the drone industry, not always the most lucrative part of the drone industry, but it's definitely the part that I think makes the most impact. And that's, that's what's most important to me. Yeah, that makes sense. So, so I want to transition into DFR because I think that's kind of a hot topic at the moment. And, and I want to, you know, when, when we looked at drones, I'm going to say in the past, in the last couple of years, especially for public safety, they were used as a secondary tool to provide to provide eye in the sky for the, uh, the the people on the ground, right? And that's what DroneSense has been doing, right? They've been using the drones to share information with everyone in the team. Uh, Matt, maybe you can explain how did you guys go into the DFR direction? Was it something that was pretty natural and saying, okay, uh, now we can use drones as first responders, aka we're going to send a drone to the scene, gather information before anybody gets there. Was that something pretty natural that you had planned for a long time and then just kind of eventually build into it? Yeah, I mean, I think... It it's one of those things that, you know, we've, so we've been doing this over eight years now and we probably have worked with more agencies than any one, you know, sort of consultant group uh, in the country. And and what we started to see probably about four years in when, when we were starting to get real adoption um, was that, you know, both big agencies and small agencies were having the same problem. The, the big agency, the big city groups, um, you know, they, they didn't have enough drones, uh, they didn't have enough pilots. And so the chances that a drone would be where they needed it to be when they needed it to be were slim to none. Um, the, the small agencies were having the same problem, which is that they may have had enough drones, but they didn't have enough people. And so you look at something like, you know, a volunteer fire department, they need seven people just to fight a one alarm fire. And now we're asking, you know, they only have five and now we're asking them to take one of those five and put them on a drone. And so they weren't, they weren't getting a lot of adoption. And so we started to realize that it can't be the first responder that's actually flying the drone. Um, that's not going to be the most effective way to do this. And so, you know, we saw pretty good adoption in those sort of, uh, you know, big city adjacent communities that had, you know, good budgets and lots of, lots of help. Um, but in the big cities and the small areas, it wasn't getting adoption. And so we, we started to realize that um, something like DFR uh, was going to be the answer. Um, we were lucky enough to be included in the San Diego IPP, uh, the Integration Partnership Program, with Chula Vista Police Department as they started their drone first responder program. Um, we wrote all of the FAA regulatory paperwork for that. And uh, I mean, I think that program at this point speaks for itself. I mean, it's been going for three years now, and they've done over 11,000 responses with that aircraft as of, I think, yesterday when I looked. And that's like 20 times more drone flights than any of my other clients combined. Um, and the, the data is astounding. They're, you know, they're saving, um, you know, having to send officers out when they don't need them. Uh, they're making arrests because the drones were there first. Um, and their response times are like in, in the two minute range, which is unbelievable. And so, you know, as soon as we got involved with that program and, and we started put two and two together, we're like, this is it. You know, this is the future of where this is going. And, and, and the current model, you know, everybody's doing the best they can, um, but it, there's limits. It's not, it's not scalable when you have to have, you know, um, police officers and firefighters basically step away from another duty to fly the drone. Uh, it just doesn't happen as often yep. as we'd like. Yeah. Yeah. 
And and Ryan, I guess same question for you. Was that kind of a, a logical transition to build a software to eventually do DFR? Yeah, it was. It's, it's something that we had talked about actually about the time I started. Um, you know, they, well, they had already been talking about it. I mean, it's it's a watching Chula Vista um, and the the amazing uh, the amazing wins they've had. Um, that's that's I think very inspiring. Um, and we all know that there's 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 more that a drone can do, whether it's delivery or agricultural. Um, there's there's just there's more that drones can do. Um, we waited though for a couple of years uh, to begin this because of the restrictions. Um, you know the IPP was working, but nobody else was able to do this. Um, and as that began to loosen up, uh, and as you know, frankly as we had dozens of our customers coming to us and saying we really want to do this. Um, at some point you say, mm -hmm. okay, it's time to, it's time to dive in. Um, so we did. And I think that it's, um, you know, similar to what Matt was saying, when we watched the response times, if you look at, uh, for instance, Collier County, um, was the first operational uh, group on, on, on drone sense remote. Um, they're, they're averaging less than 90 seconds response times. And those are, are statistics that, you know, it's, it's, of course it sounds fast. It's less than a minute and a half. It's there. But if you look at average response times for a for an agent agencies across the country, it's really I mean fast agencies are four or five minutes. Um, some places it's going to be ten or more minutes depending on traffic conditions and other. Um, and what we know is that you know research indicates video is a very powerful um, situational force for law enforcement or for fire rescue. Anyone who's walking into a scene, a single frame of a video can be uh, can change. The, the outcome from life or death. So I think for us that, you know, we, we kind of got pulled into this um, by our customers. You know, it's really cool and we love doing it, but we never want to do something. We never want to get ahead of our customers. We want to make sure that they're, uh, this is something they can actually use. And the answer now is they can. That's awesome. I mean, uh, we've spoken to a few first responders uh, in the year or so that now we've been uh, we've been doing the show, and it's it's awesome to hear these stories. Um, just for the people in our audience, and I'm not sure to which of you I need to direct this question, but can you give us a sense of how big the uh, first responder community is in the United States, and and what percentage of them use drones and have a drone program in place? If you know, yeah, I, I've got that data, Ryan. I don't know if you. I'm sure you've got it as well too, but. Uh, it, it, it's somewhere in the order of 40 to 50,000 agencies uh, across the country um, between police and fire. Um, and, you know, I think organizations like Bard College and, and drone responders are, are trying to keep track of how many are using them. And the latest numbers I saw were, you know, in the 2,500 or so programs, um, you know, which is less than less than 10 percent, obviously. So, um you know, it, it's, it's, uh, or is that less than 1%? I'm terrible at math. So like, I was told there was going to be no math in this podcast, but uh, 2,500 <laughs> out of, out of 50,000, uh, uh, is not a great, you know, 5%. Not, no. no, it's not much. There you go. 5%. Okay, good. Yeah. No, it's yeah. not much. Uh, but you know, and I, I think there's quite a bit more than that that aren't being tracked yet. Um, you know, I think there are a lot of agencies that are operating, um, programs that aren't registered and aren't, you know, FAA authorized and, and things like that. And, yeah, that's the nature of the beast. But yeah, it's not it's not a lot. Uh, and I think everybody's realized at this point, hey, this is something we need to do. But, uh, you know, there's there's several factors that well, prevent adoption. 
Yeah, I mean, that that's kind of my next question, I guess, is, I mean, if, if you see the stories about how people's lives are being saved with the help of drones, like the, those stories, uh, I, I know some examples where you have two or 300 volunteers looking for a young child in a cornfield, and then the drone pilot comes in, and within seconds, they locate the kids. Meanwhile, they had been searching for hours, and the night is setting in. So there are so many examples where the added value of a drone is so crystal clear that... I'm wondering, like, okay, if we're stuck at five percent, like, what what does it take to to get all these uh, agencies uh, a drone program? Like, what's the holdup? Is it regulation? Is it funding? Is it technology? Like, where where is the biggest friction? Let's say. Yes, it's all of those things. <laughs> I mean, it's it, it's a combination <laughs> of those things. Yeah, Personnel. Pers- yeah, I mean, honestly, yeah, I, I think there's a lot of, and, and I'm sure Ryan has a lot of thoughts on this also, but there's a lot of sort of misunderstanding about, you know, what it really takes to start a drone program. Um, it is not as simple as going out to a big box store and buying a drone. It's definitely not that simple, but it's also not like, it's not super complicated either. Um, there are, you know, I sort of like to break it down for people as there, there are four things that you really need to consider is what aircraft you're going to buy, how you're going to get trained, how you're going to get certified, and then what other stuff you need, which is primarily software. Um, and if you think through those four things and, you know, there's a way to start a drone program for under $10,000, there's a way to get three or four pilots trained, get part 107 certified. You know, if you want to go the COA route, you can do that later. And we can talk all day about that. But the, the point is that, you know, you can, you can start fairly easily. Um, you know, recurrent training is always a, is always a factor because everybody's busy. Um, but you know, there are, the barrier to entry is getting lower and lower and lower every day in a good way. Uh, That's not usually a a Mm -hmm. good statement, but the drones are getting less expensive. The software is getting less expensive. The training is getting more ubiquitous. The FAA stuff is getting easier in some respects, not, not so much on the DFR side yet, but we'll, we'll talk through that. I'm sure. Um, but you know, it, it's coming and there's ways to do it. And, and, you know, we try to encourage adoption not necessarily from Skyfire or DroneSense or anybody else, but, you know, whatever you can do to get a drone in, in first responders' hands, it's, you know, it's worth it. Yeah. yeah. As Matt said, absolutely, it's all of those factors. There's also an additional factor that I've seen around inspiration for its use. The, the best programs that we see are almost always led by somebody with, um, with an ins- some, some sort of inspiration around how to use the drone effectively. There's an operational use case that matters or several use cases that matter to them. And they're dogged about, about using the drone, making sure the drone is with them at all times. And so what we see across agencies is the ones that are very effective often have at least a core of, of officers or responders that, man, they've got that drone with them all the time. So when they do have yeah. the, you know, I can think of, of, of a couple of good examples. One was a, a customer of ours, one of our very first customers had a fleeing sub suspect. You know, it was a hit and run. They ran out of the car and they took off in a cornfield. And of course, this person had the drone with them. And so they were able to find him, even though he'd run a mile by the time they'd found him, they never would have found him uh, without a drone. Um, so there's, I think part of it is just, you know, also having that, the eye on the prize. Um, and we can also talk about the, you know, the law of diffusion. You know, you look at innovation, you always have a few early adopters way off on the, on one side. And then it, it takes a while to get the majority, um, engaged in a tech, new technology. And so I think we, we see that happening as more of these use cases come out. Uh, these wins are, are publicized. 
we'll continue to see greater and greater adoption uh, within within these programs. So you mentioned $10,000 for a drone program that would include getting the actual drone, getting people trained, uh, getting software, I guess, as well. Uh, that doesn't sound like a terribly large number. I mean, you would imagine that most first responder uh, agencies should be able to uh, uh, to make that happen. What, what does it take? Like, what are the options that first uh, responder agencies have to fund a drone program like this? Yeah, I mean that's a that's a challenge uh, in general. Yep. I would say, you know, on the on the fire side, um, you know, a lot of things in the fire service are funded by grants, um, and a lot of those grants are uh, specifically exclude drone purchases or have in the past. Um, I think that's changing, and I think fire departments are getting more creative about how they approach these things. On the law enforcement side, it's a different story. Um, you know, the homeland security grants um, have always you know had provisions for drones. Um, and then I've seen things as crazy as like sheriff's departments using commissary funds from the prison. So they're using like prisoners, M and M money to buy drone programs. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I've seen asset forfeiture <laughs> money. Awesome. I mean, money. I, we've seen it all, uh, pancake breakfasts, you know, I mean, there, there's all kinds of ways. Yeah. Um, but, but the grant thing, you know, it was sort of getting better. And then now we have this issue with Chinese manufactured aircraft and grant money from federal sources which is a whole other, uh, whole other topic of conversation, but um, it, so it, it's getting a little trickier again. Um, but, you know, I think if you can, you know, if you think about the value that that drone has um, and, and as Ryan's point, you know, you, you have to have people who are really excited about it and, you know, really champion it. But the other thing that I've seen really be a catalyst for drone programs is a, a, an incident that went poorly. Um, and so you see a child who's drowned or, uh, you know, somebody who has escaped and then went on, you know, on to hurt somebody. Um, those are, those things can often incite departments to say, Hey, you know what? We need yeah. this technology. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, as I said, it, it seems fairly simplistic, but you know, you get a, a small DJI aircraft for a thousand or two dollars and you go get a part 107, uh, you know, certificate for two or three guys and, um, you know, you go do some training uh, with with you guys, uh, you know, at Pilot Institute, or you come see us at, at Skyfire, and uh, you know, get some basic training there. That that's enough to get you started. And if you have one or two good wins, yeah, um, that typically gets more funding for that program. Yeah. Now I, I can imagine that the agencies that operate in large cities like New York, Boston, uh, Atlanta, I mean, the budgets are on a different scale, but for your average first responder agency, like, do you have any sense of how big of a budget they typically work with for one year? Well, you know, that's the other factor here too, is a lot of these agencies, what we've seen is that this becomes a project, not a program. Um, and when it's billed mm -hmm. as a project, that's a, Hey, look, we might be able to get you 30 or $40,000 go start this thing, knock yourself out, make a great drone program. But until it gets actually scheduled as a budget line item for recurrent stuff, and that means recurrent training, updates to batteries, new software licenses, things like that, um, you know, it typically doesn't really explode until it gets listed as a recurring budget item. Um, but all that to say as well, Ryan and I have a mutual friend and customer uh, who shall remain nameless, who is a uh, a large city uh, police department and uh, you know, they still have one person and uh, several drones and they're, you know, they're operating uh, quite regularly, but their budget wasn't huge either. And uh, you know, I think it's, it, it really doesn't, it, the, the number doesn't matter so much as it does the commitment to the program and to sustaining it. I would say, Ryan, I don't know if you would agree with that. Yeah. Right on Matt. The, the thing that we see though, is like anything else. If you're going to invest in something, 
um, it could be really any, you're going to invest in some technology as a, as a company or an agency, and then you see a return on that investment. The suddenly it becomes a lot easier um, to commit to, to longer and larger uh, programs. And that's, I think what happens is we see the, the agencies that move into these long-term commitments um, with their people, with their technology, uh, software and, and hardware, um, they become very successful. It's a, there's a certain, uh, you know, moving past those, those initial phases with just, you know, collecting a video and showing that it works, uh, moving into, um, you know, having everybody fully certified and trained, you know, recurrent training. And those are all big investments because what we know is that at least on the law enforcement side, probably nine out of 10, I think is the research I've seen are nine out of 10 departments are understaffed. They're, they have major gaps in their staffing. So it's hard to get those people out for training. Um, you know, but I think, you know, as mm-hmm. Matt was saying, what happens is the more they fly, the more, the more effective they are, they move from project into program of record and it becomes a, you know, kind of a self-sustaining, uh, self-sustaining uh, program. Yeah. So do you think DFR, I, I'm, I'm trying to find a term for non-DFR activity, everything else, right? The, the drone just being deployed like this. So do you think DFR as a concept is more palatable for those, um, for those agencies? It's something that maybe has more return on investment in the long run. And, and if so, why is DFR so important? What, what are the, the big benefits of DFR? So from my perspective, yes, DFR is going to become, uh, a gateway to bring people into drone programs. Um, and that's because what, as Matt was saying, you have Chula Vista flying thousands of missions per year. We have, we have large agencies that are flying many thousands of, of, of missions per year, but it's that repetition ultimately that, that breeds success. And I think that with a DFR program, it is, it's enough of an investment. You're saying, I'm going to train people. I'm going to have the right hardware, the right software, everything I need to complete this mission. And you have almost instantaneous results. Um, you may carry a drone with you for a year and never have, you just never happen to be there at the right time, the right place to actually have the win. You, so, you know, when you take one drone, mm-hmm. statistically, it's, it's not as likely to have a big impact. Whereas a rooftop operated drone in a reasonably dense population, populated area, there will be crime. There will be um, some kind of uh, law enforcement or, or, public safety event in that area. Um, and you're going to be the first one on scene. You're going to show the value and that's going to kick the, the whole thing off. The challenge, of course, is DFR is one of the more complex things you can do with a drone. Um, so I don't know. I'd kick it over to you, Matt, and, uh, and kind of talk about that. Yeah, it's definitely a double-edged sword. Um, you know, I, I think that, you know, first of all, I think DFR scares people a little bit right now, um, particularly because of the FAA piece of it. Um, and to be honest with you, Ryan and I have had this issue for a long time where, you know, we, we're sort of waiting on the FAA to uh, get to this point where this becomes a little bit more systematic. Um, I will tell you um, that in, just in the last two weeks, uh, there's been quite a bit of progress, and um, we'll be talking about that a lot going forward. Uh, but we've had three programs in the last uh, in the last several weeks that have been approved for BB loss. Um, but I would also say that that's not necessarily uh, you know a showstopper. Even if you aren't doing BB loss, there's plenty that that can be done within line of sight. All of that said, uh, you know, like you said, Ryan, I mean, DFR is definitely a more complex undertaking um, and just in coordination. 
Um, but yeah, you're definitely more likely to have that kind of success. The, the one thing I will say too, and this is sort of my vision for it, um, and Ryan, you and I have never really talked about this before, but I see this as a regional approach to drone response. Um, you know, there's a lot of agencies. I mean, I just, you know, I, I, I live in Huntsville, Alabama now, but I spent 20 years in Atlanta. And in the Atlanta metro area, there's probably 75 different agencies. Um, at least five of them are talking about starting DFR programs. And to me, I'm like, why reinvent the wheel? Like if we can get over this whole cross-jurisdictional, um, you know, thing that we've got going on and say, hey, look, this drone is on a rooftop and maybe it's right on the edge of the, of the city line, but we could also fly into your jurisdiction and get you data. Um, this is a really cool way to, to regionalize drone response. Um, and I think that's what we're, we're really targeting is, is, you know, not just my little castle and my little kingdom, but uh, how can we help everybody around us too? You, you talked about the FAA being a bit of a challenge. What's the what's the difficulty with the FAA approving these programs? Is it is it the the drones not being shown as being reliable just yet, flying over people, flying over moving vehicle? Is it the beyond visual line of sight issue with the drones not having uh, sensors that can avoid the the sense and avoid sensors on on the drone? What's the what's the main thing that you see with the FAA where they're like, ooh, hold on, we're 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 going to take yeah, this, this slowly. Is, uh, this is a bit of a minefield, Greg. So. I'm going to, I'm going to tread lightly here, but, uh, but, uh, hi, I don't know. Are, are you, a, are you a manned aircraft pilot as well? Uh, no, I'm not an uh, manned aircraft pilot. Okay. No. okay. <laughs> All right. So three out of the four of us are manned aircraft pilots and, and we understand that there is a real risk here, uh, to drones getting in the way, particularly when we're, you know, taking off or landing from an airport. Um, and for those that are helicopter pilots as well. Um, and, and ultimately that's the, uh, that is the FAA's concern, right? It's, it's our responsibility as pilots to see and avoid other aircraft. Um, and so it, the, they have not been, um, convinced in a, in a way that is to their liking, um, that drones can do that appropriately. Now there's a lot of work being done in that area, both on the software side, on the hardware side. Um, I think, you know, manned aircraft pilots are starting to get used to the idea of drones. Um, but ultimately, um, you know, the FAA is doing their best to keep our airspace the safest airspace in the world, um, because it is, and they want to keep it that way wh while trying to allow this stuff, um, for, for public safety. And of course, for commercial entities too. I mean, I, you know, we, we all can't wait for the day where Amazon drops a package off on our front lawn with a drone, but, uh, we have to do that safely and we have to do that. Uh, uh, well, yeah, I maybe, I guess it, it depends where you may stand somewhere different on that issue, but, um, it's a whole show in itself. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. So yeah, I, I, I think that, um, I understand the concern. I really do. Um, and like I said, being behind the yoke of an airplane, I, I get the concern. Um, I, I think that the FAA mm -hmm. uh, is working to try and find ways to make it um, easier for public safety agencies to do this. Um, and typically, you know, I, I can just kind of walk you through the evolution here, which was when we started with Chula Vista, it was you need to have a visual observer on the roof and they need to be able to see three miles. They don't have to see the aircraft, but they do have to see the airspace. Then we sort of morphed into, well, you have to have a VO and a pilot in command on the roof. And you have to be able to still see three miles. So now all of a sudden we've got two police officers standing on a roof. And then in this last round um, of approvals, what we're starting to see is uh, two miles instead of three miles, but with the, this sort of concept of daisy chaining visual observers. And so as long as a visual observer can see two miles around the aircraft, um, it, it almost isn't as much of a concern where the, the takeoff point was. Um, it's better. It's not great. Um, it still took over six months. 
Um, and it, it's a work in progress. And I think, you know, until we have drones that, you know, we are hundred percent sure are going to see and avoid until UTM, uh, unmanned traffic management is a, a reality. Remote ID is still coming online. All of those things kind of, you know, play together to make a safer airspace picture for us. Um, and, and it will get better. Uh, yeah. I was going to ask. Yeah, I was going to ask, is, is this the answer? Is the, the rest of the UTM concept being put in place? Is that what we're waiting for? Or, or is the industry a bit too early or the FA a little bit too late in the implementation? Is that what we're waiting for to, uh, to get there? I'll, I'll let you take that one, Ryan. I, I did enough talking on this subject, I think. <laughs> yeah, I don't need an FAA. It's it's so <laughs> yeah, thanks. Thanks for that, Matt. That's a, yeah, no, I appreciate that. We're cutting to so, commercials. <laughs> so I already mentioned I've got a younger brother. I also have an older sister. Um, I'm a middle child, so you're, you're going to get the diplomatic response from me. And it really is around FAA has this duty to protect this airspace. And, you know, we, we were talking about um, police offices or um, fire departments investing in a drone program. They want to make sure that, A, that their money is going somewhere, B, that it's actually going to contribute to their picture and be safe, um, and, and C, that you're not going to do anything harmful with a drone. That is also a concern that you're, you're out there distracting people. And I have seen drones misused in operational circumstances where they do create a, a distraction. Um, what we have seen on the drone sense side is realistically the most likely interaction you're going to have between a drone and an aircraft uh, and a public safety operation is probably with a contributing crude aircraft. It's, it's probably going to be one of your helicopters that you end up um, connecting with because mm -hmm. you're both trying to work the same scene. You know, at 150 feet yeah. or 200 feet, um, yeah. I'm a fixed wing pilot. So, I mean, I'm, uh, you know, I'm below my, my lowest mins by the time I'm, I'm that low. Um, but I think for in public safety operations, we know of operations, particularly in Texas, where you have uh, drones above rotor wing aircraft. So in drone sense, we've taken the tact of, well, we want to pull those manned assets into our application as well. Um, so you can fly with a with an Android device or an iOS device and see the location and altitude of that um, of that helicopter um, or or fixed wing aircraft as a part of your overall operational yeah. picture. So we were talking about that big Austin exchange. Well, there's there were helicopters involved, and of course you're going to have uh, one of those devices in each helicopter so that that's um, part of your overall situational picture. So what is that? That's really it's kind of our own little microcosm of UTM. You know, we we recognize the absolute importance of being able to to, to deconflict um, from cooperative and non-cooperative aircraft. So I think there's a lot of work to be done um, to demonstrate to the FAA that that you can do it safely. In fact, if you talk to Lieutenant Ayana down at Brookhaven, he'll tell you number one thing is get out there and start safely operating. Demonstrate to the FAA that you can do this effectively and safely. Um, that you're not a, a cowboy. No offense to anybody. They've got to be careful. You know, most of our, our companies in Texas, that's not a bad thing, Cowboys, for anybody listening. Um, but it's, it's very important that we demonstrate absolute professionalism. Um, I know Matt, you know, kind of discusses this a lot, and we sure do too. When we talk with customers and, you know, as our reach has grown, we need to, we need to fly really safely and really effectively so that the FAA will continue um, to trust us uh, more with these operations. Well, and I think that too, that I think this is another benefit of, of DFR is that if you have one person or one group of people that are all they're responsible for is flying or is flying these drones, they're going to take it more seriously than the guy who or the gal who has the drone in the backseat of their 
cruiser and says, oh, let me throw that up real quick and just see what, you know, that's not their job, right? Their job is to fight the fire or chase the bad guy or whatever. But if it's your job to be on a rooftop all day long uh, operating this, then, you know, you're going to know what you're doing. So that's another another sort of side benefit of the DFR model. Yeah. So I'm going to throw the hand grenade in and just leave. But uh, how about you mentioned you mentioned remote ID? Um, is remote ID really going to help with uh, this situation? And, and I'm talking about manned aircraft versus unmanned aircraft uh, separation. Remote ID is not going to be in manned aircraft. It will help probably the rest of people on the ground and probably you at DroneSense. Uh, I'm guessing, Ryan, will remote ID will help. But what, what's your thought? Maybe both of you on that. And from our perspective, yeah, remote ID will help. Of course, we're we're a software company, Greg. So we we sure wish there was a remote ID for the software side. Um, so if I were to say that, that this is one area where I think that software can help an awful lot, um, it reduces. I'm not saying that it replaces a hardware solution, but software um, really can help. Uh, you know, a software remote ID solution um, I think could paint help contribute to a very comprehensive picture of what's going on. Things like ADSB. Yep. Exactly. Situational awareness. Um, ADSB, you know, if it was more uh, complete in the sense that, I mean, of course, any aircraft mm -hmm. you're flying, Greg, I'm sure has ADSB at this point. I know mine, you know, the aircraft I've been flying does, but there are, you know, since there are these exclusions, you can't 100% rely on it. And I think that's, that's a huge challenge for us. Um, all of us in the, in the, in the drone industry for if we could just have complete remote ID and complete um, ADSB coverage. Uh, I do think that that begins to really make some of these uh, deconfliction um, opportunities really, really feasible. Yep. So should, I'm going to throw another hand grenade. Should all aircraft be mandated to have uh, uh, ADSB since all Unmanned aircraft are going to be mandated to have See, remote. Now ID. you're now you're really putting me in a pickle here because <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean I do ask myself these questions all the time. It, it's it is tough because it's an expensive solution, right? But if we're trying to really integrate everyone in the airspace, is it really the only solution that that it's, it will it's solve ADSB that? is really tough for for certain operators. Um, there are military and law enforcement operations that really. To just cannot have that kind of that level of visibility. So in my mind, there's always going to be some kind of cutout, um, but there needs to be a solution for that. So that okay, if ADSB is not turned on, perhaps there's some other um, some other way of alerting aircraft um, to that to that presence. Um, I don't know, Matt. Since I've I've been taking most of the yep. hits here, what do you think? <laughs> hey, I took a, I took a couple. Of, I took a couple for the team here. Yeah, no. What's interesting you say that actually, Ryan, because I, you know, as I said, I live in Huntsville, and this is kind of you know the northern Alabama is kind of the the home of Army aviation, um, and so there is a lot of stuff flying around out here that is not on ADSB, and uh, it, it does concern me. Um, I do. I fly out of Redstone Arsenal when the the flying club that I'm in. Um, and so I'm, you know, I'm sort of used to being around all these aircraft that aren't on ADSB, uh, and, and radar coverage is is good. But uh, from a, a drone perspective, yeah, I mean, if I'm out in a field and I'm I'm looking on FlightAware or my, any you know for flight or anything like that, I don't see that stuff. And so yeah, there that's always going to be a limitation. Um, but I also think that you know there are things like Blackhawks flying around here. You know, they're pretty loud, so you have to you know use your other senses. 
that does get concerning though when you talk about remote operation. So if I'm inside in a, a command center and I'm flying something, I can't hear the Black Hawk flying overhead. Um, so I, I don't know, to be honest with you, I don't know the answer there. I, I think there's, like Ryan said, there's just some people who can't broadcast where they are at all times. So a lot of uh, a lot of challenges when uh, when it comes to using drones um i don't know if this question is going to be much easier and uh, feel free to uh, to jump in to answer it but um i know for instance from boston as well as from la uh, when they were launching their drone programs uh, a lot of people in the community uh, were voicing their concerns about privacy uh can you guys share some some insights there and perhaps some best practices as to how you deal with community concerns and privacy concerns when you're launching a drone program yeah, I mean, I, I, I'll take that one uh, to start. And, you know, I, I think one of the things that we've talked to almost every one of our, our programs about is be transparent about what you're doing and more importantly, what you're not doing. Um, you know, you, Ryan, you mentioned Lieutenant Ayana uh, from Brookhaven Police in Atlanta. Um, from the beginning, they went out to the community and said, we are starting a DFR program. This is what that means. Uh, we are not going to be patrolling we're not flying overhead looking for crime we're only we're only responding at, you know to a request for help so you've already called 911 and you should expect some police presence um, they are also making it very clear that you know they're not looking in windows and they're not looking at you know sunbathers out by the pool um, the other thing that they did that i thought was really interesting um, was they actually took their drone policy and they went directly to the ACLU and said take a look at this and tell us what problems you have with it and let's fix that beforehand. Um, there are other programs, particularly on the law enforcement side, where, where they have said, no, we don't really want to tell people what we're doing. I said, well, that's going to cause problems for you later on. Uh, the amount of Freedom of Information Act requests you're going to get and the amount of video you're going to have to produce. Um, so I think, I think being transparent is key. Um, we see a lot less of these concerns on the fire rescue side. You mentioned L.A., um, you know, the L.A. fire and L.A. police were starting drone programs at the same time. Uh, LA police had a huge public safe, uh, public uh, relations disaster with theirs. Meanwhile, LA fire was out doing what they needed to do. And so, um, you know, working together with, between those agencies, I think is also critical. Um, and, and just getting people to understand that, you know, the limitations of the technology, if I'm 400 feet over the top of your house, I can't see in your bedroom window, nor do I want to be. Um, but you know, the technology yeah. doesn't see through walls and it doesn't see through roofs. And yes, you know, thermal cameras can do certain things like see heat signatures, but uh, by the very physics of thermal imaging, you can't see through glass. And so, you know, explaining those things to people, letting them see the drones, uh, letting them see that they're not, you know, they don't have missiles, yeah. you know, <laughs> underneath them or guns or anything like that. But this is the this is the perception of drones that people have. And so I think there's a lot to, to be said for uh, oh, yeah. for walking that back. We, we spoke uh, with Chula Vista some time ago and they uh, showed us how they share every individual uh, drone flight in a database so that people can actually just, from from the citizens there or the, the residents, they can just log in and just check out those flights. Is, is that the way to go, to just basically put all those flights out there for people to, to look at and to scrutinize? Uh, Ryan, I, I, you probably have more experience with that than I do, but I know the, the programs that do that, I think, have very few, if any, complaints. Yeah, I think that I think it is a best practice. Now, there are certain agencies for whom that's not going to make a lot of sense. Uh, but if you talk to Vern, um, of course, he, he you know he kind of helped start that program at Chula Vista, and he's now with our our partner Axon. Um, if you talk to Vern, it, it is amazing the that kind of transparency, what that the trust that builds with your community. 
And for law enforcement in particular, trust is a absolutely precious commodity, hard to build, really easy to, to lose. Um, so in privacy is part of that. And I think that, you know, the thing I'll add about privacy is that there's always a tension between, um, in social media or in use of, you know, if you, if you have a, a phone, you have this, this challenge, this tension between privacy and convenience. For public safety, it's a, it's a tension between privacy and situational awareness. Those, those two things can be at loggerheads at times. And that's where selecting the right technology is, is, is so key. Um, you could get almost all of the same benefits and perhaps some more by putting fixed cameras all across your city. Um, if you had unlimited funding and could put thousands of fixed cameras all over, you know, looking at every street and every house and every backyard of the entire city, you could get all the benefits um, of the DFR programs that, that we talk about. But wide area surveillance like that doesn't do a whole lot to build trust. And it certainly invades a lot of privacy. The beautiful thing about a DFR program is that that's it's a soda straw. That is a it's it's a powerful zoom camera generally on a, a very capable aircraft, but it's to be dispatched to an ongoing scene. It's it's an exigent circumstance that draws it to that location. It's only looking there, um, and so then so you you replace wide area surveillance with a soda straw, only providing that situational awareness in the place that it that matters. And I think on the backside, accountability is so key. So what Chula Vista um, is doing is absolutely a best practice. You know, there's, it lends a, a sense of accountability. You know, if you continue to fly to the same place, you know, someone who lives there can look that up and say, you know, why are you flying around my house? And you can, you know, form a complaint that way. So I, I think that I think you're, you're right. It is a best practice. So that kind of brings me uh, to the next question. Like with all these different agencies now having drone programs in place, like how do you measure the, the value or the success of a drone program? Like what's, what's the most convincing arguments that's, uh, that we have basically to show how valuable drones are? You know, one of the things and I just had this conversation with an agency the other day is trying to measure the cost savings that they've had because of the drone. Um, but that's always tricky because, you know, you can't, we don't have good enough data to be able to say, you know, because I had the drone there first or because I had the drone there at all, um, I was able to, you know, respond with one alarm instead of two alarms, or I was able to get three officers there instead of 10. Um, I, you know, and I think agencies are starting to look at how to track that data. Um, and so I think that's one, that's one way to do it. And certainly when you're talking to, um, you know, accounting departments and procurement departments, you know, cost savings is always going to be the best way to get them to spend money on something. Um, and so that, that data is important. Uh, we certainly don't want to boil it down to just cost, um, but also lives saved too. I mean, there's countless stories. Yeah. Uh, and there have been, honestly, since the early days um, of when we started this, every week I'm getting a text from somebody going like, hey, look at what we did this week. Or, you know, hey, we were able to, there's a perfect example um, that we uh, saw recently out of Atlanta um, a client of, of both of ours uh, flew a drone into a an apartment with a barricaded gunman who was wanted for murder. Um, the drone was able to back the suspect out safely, uh, and the SWAT team never went in there, so they weren't putting their lives in danger, and the suspect wasn't in danger because there were no guys with guns in there. And so that's a success. Um, you know, let the robot do the work, right? I mean, bomb teams have known this for a long time. <laughs> you know, instead of putting a guy in a, you know, stave pup, stave pup marshmallow suit and putting their life in danger, let the robot go, go in and figure out what's going on first before you start sending people in there. And, uh, and I think that's, yeah. that's how you measure success of these programs. That's what you were talking about, Ryan, right? With this de escalation we talked before the show. 
That's right. It's it's really um, it's also all about the things you don't end up having to do at, in person. Yeah. Um, if you if you send the the robot to do it instead, you know the classic thing. If you talk to Sergeant Baker down in Collier County, you know he's been operating um, a significant number, a significant percentage of the calls um, that the drone is dispatched on. They're able to clear just with the drone. Um, Chula Vista and Brookhaven, of course, are doing the same thing. You know, so they're out there and they're able to um, prevent someone even from driving to that location. You know, each time an officer drives somewhere, it is a it's, it's a certain cost. There's fuel and wear and tear. There's also danger of simply just driving um, through the streets. So it's that that's a big part of it. But I think that the de-escalation component is probably, at least in my opinion, the most uh, not only in culturally important for us as a society um, to to have safer interactions between uh, public safety and and communities, um, but this is also just an opportunity to, to make those to make those interactions more pleasant. If um, somebody is able to see that video as they're approaching a scene, they can see it's just a bunch of kids out there fooling around. They they can have a different presence as they walk into that scene. Um, if they just hear the screaming. And that's all they've got. There's going to be a different level of, of response as, as they approach the scene. So de-escalation, allowing officers and communities to make really wise decisions in these very challenging moments is, I think, that is the reason uh, for drones and, and specifically for DFR. Yeah. And I think it's also difficult sometimes to say, well, you know, we, we didn't lose an officer because we had a drone because, well, nothing happened. So how, how do you show that nothing happened when, right? It, it, so yeah, it, it, it's always difficult to show the, the, the proof right there. Now I, I want to transition real quick and we're getting towards the end of, of the uh, interview, unfortunately, because we've talked about some amazing stuff, but I want to talk about the drones themselves that are being used for DFR. What are the specs per se? And I'm not looking for brand or anything, but what is needed to have uh, to, to make a good drone for DFR? I guess by math silence, I, I'm going to answer this one. Um, the, for, from my perspective, a good drone for, for a drone as a first responder program, first of all, has to be all weather capable. It's got to have a good zoom lens. It has to be safe and reliable. Um, the connectivity has to be extraordinary. It, we're asking these drones to fly much farther than than they would in normal operations. So it's it's a combination of reliability and safety and um, and just power. It's got to be a powerful experience flying a drone um, in this kind of in this kind of uh, environment. But ultimately, as we talked about for the very beginning, the thing that matters is getting video to people that need it. So it's got to be a good camera and you have to have a good connection. Yeah. And the only other thing that makes Matt, no, I agree with all that. The only other thing I would add to that is battery life and endurance. Um, you know, you're, you're flying distances further than, than we're used to. Um, and so it's, it's great if you have a great camera and great connection, but if you get on scene and you can only stay there for two minutes before you have to come back, um, you know, that's a big limitation. So, yeah, there's been a lot of talk about, you know, autonomously recharging drones, hydrogen fuel cell drones, gas powered drones, um, you know, better batteries, you know, I think all of those things are, are on the docket. But, you know, one of the things in general that I've always said, uh, you know, is that the drone itself doesn't matter so much. It's really all about the sensor that you put on it and whatever you're doing to process that data. Um, and I think that's the key, right? All we're doing is offering perspective. Yep. So that, that's all this aircraft is doing. And if you oh. buy the latest and greatest or you got an old, old reliable workhorse, uh, it, it doesn't matter so much as long as you have the right sensor 
and the right software to process it and, and a way to see it, you know, I think that that's the most important thing. So a few years ago, they introduced the Blue SUES program, uh, a government program that basically promotes the use of, of drones that are made or assembled in the United States. Um, the drones in that program have gotten some critique that uh, their capabilities were limited, perhaps that their pricing was uh, was extraordinarily high. Uh, if you compare that with the budgets that we're working with, and we're saying, okay, uh, it's ten thousand bucks that it uh, that it takes to basically start a basic drone program, uh, is Blue SUES the answer or are the DJI and the hotel drones so much less expensive so much more capable that we really should be able to use uh, Chinese made drones <laughs> this is another minefield we're walking into so this is great um, no I uh, <laughs> a little bit <laughs> yeah no it, it's a good question though I mean I think look I think the the spirit of blue SUAS is right um, you know I think we are yeah. we, we we should be using stuff that's made here um, I, you know, look, whether do I think that the Chinese government is spying on every, you know, every drone that it's got in the air? No, do I, you know, I think there's a, a political component to that. Um, but I do think it's important to support American industry and, and you know, and build stuff here. Um, <clears throat> you know, I think the reality of the situation is the American drone industry, uh, drone manufacturing industry is like three, four years old, right? The, the defense drone industry in America is 25, 30 years old. Um, and so there's a lot of catching up to do. And, and, you know, I mentioned in the beginning, we're, we're making our own aircraft. Um, it's been a really uphill battle, um, to get the right, the right sensors, the right stuff, you know, the right integration, the right software, the right ground stations. Um, and, you know, that's all really a challenge because it's still fresh, right? And, and you still can't get motors that are made in, in America. There are pieces and parts that we have to get from China. Batteries, you know, are another good example. Um, and so, yeah, I, you know, again, I, I agree, um, that something needed to be done. I think blue SUAS is a little bit limited. Um, and the fact that uh, now we're way into the weeds here, but the fact that you can't list a drone on the GSA schedule, that's not on the blue list, um, is problematic <clears throat> part, pardon me, because only so many of us can get on the blue list and there's, there's other stuff that goes along with that. But yeah. I, I think the idea is right. I think yeah. to be honest with you. Uh, there's a large percentage of departments that are going to be flying Chinese aircraft for a very long time. Um, things like what's happening in Florida, where they're being banned from using those aircraft, I think uh, it, it too too much too soon. Um, you know, I think there, an adoption period is really important there. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, as an American drone manufacturer, uh, we are doing the best we can to get the best product out. It's just been uh, oh, and then, oh, I forgot the whole, you know, two years of global pandemic and supply chain shortages and all that kind of stuff, too. Oh, yeah. You had all of that <laughs> on top of it. The, you know, whatever progress was being made is, is, has been hampered that much more. So, yeah, um, it, yeah, yeah, it's a it's a it's a tough nut to crack right now. And, I, and there is no great answer. And if a department says to me, hey, I've got 10 grand to spend on a drone. Do I go American or do I go Chinese? If you don't have a restriction on that money, I'd buy Chinese. As, and I say that as somebody who makes a drone because they're 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 better they're more researched they're you know they're yep. well worn they're less expensive and uh you know if you can go for it is my opinion yeah, yeah my my thoughts on that of course are, are very similar <laughs> seems like we're well aligned that that's 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 convenient for this talk um but i think the the truth is that each drone each model of drone um, has its its utility. Nobody set out to make a bad drone in any of these uh, in these environments. They're designed for a specific thing. 
the original blue list was designed for a particular army program, um, and and each of those performed really well for that um, for for that program. That's why they were selected. Um, and sometimes those 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 requirements match up really well for for customers. At DroneSense, or you know, with Axon Air powered by DroneSense, we provide security either way. You know, and we can I mean, that's that's another show altogether where we talk about security and. Um, you know, and, and how that can be achieved, um, you know, the correct amount of security for the right um, operation. But the, the number one thing is that each of those drones have the utility. Um, there's a design point for each. Uh, and we know customers out there that are, are flying uh, many different varieties of blue UAS as well as Chinese drones extremely effectively. So, you know, I think each department needs to look at their own needs and figure out, you know, what combination of camera, drone platform, um, source of uh, point of origin um, works for me, and then work with a company like like Skyfire or DroneSense um, to get the absolute most out of it. Makes sense. So my last question of the show, and this is a quick fire question, one minute or less, look in your crystal ball, where are we going to be in five years as far as technology and, and drone use for uh, public safety? DFR, <laughs> DFR for the win. <laughs> this is where it's all heading. Um, I, I think, you know, the FAA permissions are going to get uh, easier um, to achieve. I think the you know, the drones themselves uh, may improve some, but honestly, the big improvements are going to come in the, the power, um, you know, the, the batteries, the software, uh, the, the integration. Um, and I think, you know, it, the only way that this can go is DFR, right? There's just not enough people and there's not enough training in the world to make sure that a drone is there on every call unless you're doing it uh, using DFR. And so, um, you know, that's why we're very much committed um, to DFR as a concept. Um, you know, we, we are actually the future of our company is we'd like to, you know, offer DFR as a service um, so that you don't even have to have your pilots, your, your police officers sweating on the rooftop. Let us do that for you. Um, and I think that that's going to become more popular. It's our, we're already seeing it in Chula Vista and yeah. other places. Um, and so I think that's that's where this is all heading in five years. And hopefully we can get there more quickly and more safely than five years. <laughs> yep. Yeah, it's, it's, it's DFR. And I think it's going to be drone in a box where we have drones without people on rooftops staged around cities and regions. Um, and those operations are going to be fully collaborative. So it won't be a law enforcement DFR solution. It's going to be a whole of city um, response solution. So whether it's a fire or it's a law enforcement scene. Um, so I think it's going to be this fewer people um, involved, you know, less staffing required um, and, and a much, a much more powerful overall meshed operation. Makes sense. Very interesting. Well, gentlemen, I, I really appreciate uh, your time and, and coming on the show to talk about this. I think this was very insightful. Uh, we'll we'll uh, roll this back in five years. We'll call you back and see uh, if uh, if your prediction was correct. <laughs> but J just how wrong we were. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, this is all we have. Uh, we'll put links down in the description if you want to find more information about Skyfire or Drone Sense. And then uh, in the meantime, we'll see you guys at the next uh, drone show somewhere. I'm sure. Sounds great. Look forward to it.